Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Opposition Cast. I'm Nigel Fletcher. There's less than a week to go until the US elections take place on the 3rd of November in a race that will decide who will sit in the White House for the next four years. What is on the ballot here is the character of this country. Decency, honour, respect, treating people with dignity, making sure that everyone has an even chance. And I'm going to make sure you get that. You haven't been getting it the last four years. Democratic nominee and former Vice President Joe Biden speaking there at the final debate in the election. He's the favourite, according to the polls, to win the election against incumbent Donald Trump, whose surprising win four years ago defied the polls of that time. And a victory for him is certainly not out of the question. So today we're going to be looking at the issue of Donald Trump and opposition to him. And I think it's an interesting way of looking at the different forms of opposition that can take place in politics. Because it doesn't just take place between major parties, it doesn't take place just between candidates, but it is in many senses a political force that exists in any political equation. Opposition will always exist to any decision that's taken, and I like to think of it as almost a Newtonian force. For every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And I think it's fair to say that reaction to the candidacy and then the presidency of Donald Trump has been particularly dramatic. At every point on his political journey, people have speculated and predicted that he was about to fail, that there was too much opposition to him, that he was an unfit candidate, and that people simply wouldn't tolerate him. And at every point so far, they have been proved wrong. Later on in the podcast, I'll be talking to Chris Brennan, a lifelong Republican who describes himself as a never-Trumper, the group of Republicans who oppose Donald Trump being their candidate, and many of whom are now actively campaigning against him winning re-election. Chris is now working for an organisation called Defending Democracy Together, and is organising their operations in the key swing state of Pennsylvania. But before that, let's have a look at how we got to this situation in the first place. As I said, there have been many occasions over the last four or five years when people have predicted that Trump was about to fail. There has been an awful lot of opposition to him, and none of it has so far been effective. One of the hallmarks of Trump's rhetoric has been an outpouring of sexist and misogynistic insults against women who oppose him. And so we thought it would be appropriate if we told this part of the story through the words of three strong and outspoken women who have stood up to Donald Trump. The first of them is Carly Fiorina, the former chief executive of Hewlett-Packard, who was the only woman in the Republican primary race for the presidential nomination. She became an early victim of Donald Trump's style of politics when he used an interview to direct derogatory remarks towards her based on her physical appearance. She therefore received quite a lot of attention in the run-up to the debates that took place in September 2015 between the candidates vying for the Republican nomination. And she gave an interview where she was asked about Donald Trump and his style of politics. This is what she said. Of course character matters. You know, when you think about leadership, and certainly the Oval Office requires leadership. It is about strength, 
It is about courage. It is about judgment. It, it is about temperament. It is most definitely about character. And character requires humility and empathy as well as confidence. And one of the things that I believe is that character is revealed over time and under pressure. And so I think all of our characters are being revealed over time and under pressure, including Mr. Trump's. Mm -hmm. As Carly Fiorina predicted, Donald Trump's character was indeed revealed as the primary process continued. And many expected that the Republican Party, as it continued on, and narrowed down its field of candidates, would eliminate him from the race. But it didn't happen, and he became the Republican nominee for president. So the Republican Party and the primary process had failed to stop Donald Trump. And so on into the presidential election itself. Donald Trump, as the Republican nominee, was up against Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee, and the first woman to be nominated by a main political party in the United States for president. And she didn't pull her punches either about what she thought of his character and his abilities. In June 2016, this is what she told the American people. Americans aren't just electing a president in November. We're choosing our next commander in chief, the person we count on to decide questions of war and peace, life and death. And like many across our country and around the world, I believe the person the Republicans have nominated for president cannot do the job. Donald Trump's ideas aren't just different. They are dangerously incoherent. They're not even really ideas, just a series of bizarre rants personal feuds, and outright lies. He is not just unprepared. He is temperamentally unfit to hold an office that requires knowledge, stability, and immense responsibility. That speech by Hillary Clinton was made in June of 2016, and the campaign still had several months left to run. As it continued through until November, the question marks over Donald Trump's suitability for office, if anything, only intensified. At the final presidential debate held in October, Hillary Clinton confronted Donald Trump directly with the fresh allegations about his behaviour and attitudes, and linked these to broader concerns about his conduct during the campaign. So we now know what Donald thinks and what he says and how he acts toward women. That's who Donald is. I think it's really up to all of us to demonstrate who we are and who our country is and to stand up and be very clear about what we expect from our next president. And it's not just about women. It's not one thing. This is a pattern, a pattern of divisiveness, of a very dark and in many ways, dangerous vision of our country where he incites violence, where he applauds people who are pushing and pulling and punching at his rallies. That is not who America is. And I hope that as we move in the last weeks of this campaign, more and more people will understand what's at stake in this election. It really does come down to what kind of country we are going to have. A couple of weeks later, the election took place. 
and we all know what happened. But it's worth pausing to remember that a majority of voters who voted in the 2016 presidential election voted against Donald Trump becoming their president. In fact, Hillary Clinton won nearly 3 million more votes than her opponent in the election. But of course, in the American system, winning the popular vote isn't enough to win you the White House. You have to win in the Electoral College, the system by which each state is allocated a number of votes in the Electoral College according to its population size. Donald Trump was able to secure narrow victories in enough of the swing states to take him over the 270 electoral votes that he needed to secure the presidency. And if we look in a bit more detail at some of those key swing states, we can speculate on another reason why Hillary Clinton is not today sitting in the White House. Because whilst the presidential race is portrayed as being very much between the two major party candidates, there are other minor parties on the ballot, including the Green Party's Jill Stein in 2016. And an analysis of the results showed that in the key swing states of Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, Donald Trump's margin of victory over Hillary Clinton was so small that if the relatively tiny number of voters who voted for Jill Stein had instead cast their votes for Hillary Clinton, she would have won those states and with them the presidency. If we assume that nearly all of those who voted for the Green Party would have been heavily opposed to Donald Trump becoming president, we can see that the fact that opposition to him was divided between the main challenger to him and a minority party allowed him to defeat them. And so, American voters, or perhaps more accurately, their electoral system, failed to stop Donald Trump. Once he'd become president, some people might have assumed that the checks and balances that are inherent within the American political system might have served to constrain him. I think it's fair to say that has not been our experience, and that's something that I'll be discussing with uh, Chris Brennan a little bit later. But if we fast forward a few years to the midterm elections in 2018, Donald Trump was finally presented with a bit of institutional opposition to his presidency, with the Democrats winning control of the House of Representatives. From that position, they were able to provide some form of legislative scrutiny, oversight, uh, and indeed opposition to him. And then a year ago, faced with yet more allegations that he had abused the power of his office for personal and political gain, Trump was met with the ultimate sanction available in the US Constitution, the threat of impeachment and removal from office by the Congress. But whilst the articles of impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanours were passed by the House of Representatives, the trial of the President would take place in the Senate. And in the Senate, the Republicans were in the majority. Had they been willing to hear the case, as perhaps the founders of the Constitution intended, free of partisan bias, the result might have been in some doubt. But in the event, everyone was clear from the very outset that the Republicans would back their man. The President would clearly be acquitted. 
The situation was summed up by Democratic Senator Kamala Harris of California, now the Democratic Party's nominee for Vice President. When the framers wrote the Constitution, they didn't think someone like me would serve as a United States Senator. But they did envision someone like Donald Trump being President of the United States. Someone who thinks he is above the law and that rules don't apply to him. So they made sure our democracy had the tool of impeachment to stop that kind of abuse of power. The House managers have clearly laid out a compelling case and evidence of Donald Trump's misconduct. He wanted a foreign country to announce, not actually conduct, announce an investigation into his political rivals. And then he refused to comply with congressional investigations into his misconduct. And unfortunately, a majority of United States senators, even those who concede that what Donald Trump did was wrong, are nonetheless going to refuse to hold him accountable. Donald Trump is going to get away with abusing his position of power for personal gain, abusing his position of power to stop Congress from looking into his misconduct and falsely claiming he's been exonerated. Senator Kamala Harris speaking in the Senate chamber in February of this year. And indeed, the Senate did vote along party lines with the Republican majority voting to acquit Donald Trump of the charges against him. With one sole exception, the Republican Senator Mitt Romney, who became the first US Senator in history to cast a vote to convict and remove the president of their own party from office. But he was the only one, and the remaining 52 Republican Senators voted on party lines to acquit their president. And so, through a failed attempt at impeachment, the Congress of the United States failed to stop Donald Trump. And so that brings us to this year's election. And given how controversial Trump has been over the last four or five years, you might have expected him to face a significant challenge for the Republican nomination, even to stand again as president. After all, when he emerged as a candidate in 2015 and 2016, it was from a field full of quite high-ranking and prominent Republican candidates. Where have they all gone? Where is the opposition to Trump that existed then in the Republican Party? Well, to try and answer that question, I spoke to Chris Brennan, a lifelong Republican who is now actively campaigning against Donald Trump and has indeed endorsed Joe Biden, his Democratic rival. Not only that, but he's encouraging other Republicans to join him and do the same. And he's doing so in the key swing state of Pennsylvania. So, we had a lot to discuss, but before we dived into the question of Donald Trump, we spoke in more general terms about elections and campaigning in the United States. And I asked Chris to begin by giving an overview of his experience in Republican Party politics. 
Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's uh, good to speak to you today uh, on a very foggy day in central Pennsylvania. But, you know, my career path is pretty similar to folks of uh, my generation. Um, started out in the 90s in opposition to the Clintons. That was my um, kind of entrance to politics was uh, spurred on by opposition and Late 90s, I started in congressional campaigns in America, and then I went to um, my first presidential race was in 2000 for George W. Bush. I, I ran south, uh, southern New Jersey for him and um, just continued on doing all sorts of campaigns from local, you know, local mayors, things like that, to state uh, offices and federal. Uh, again, in 2004, I, I was in Pennsylvania. That's what brought me to Pennsylvania. Uh, to run President Bush's reelect campaign in, in southeastern Pennsylvania, which is the suburban, the traditional suburbs uh, of Philadelphia, uh, what they call the collar counties, uh, Delaware, Montgomery, uh, Chester, Bucks, and and have you know been in government. I, I was communications director for the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, um, worked in the governor's office in Pennsylvania, and have done some things outside of government as well. Um, like I said, pretty standard. It's not not too many issues I would be considered left on. I have been moving um, on on the climate change issue. I, I would say I'm probably for British politics, probably far to the right. But for American politics, I'm probably in the center to the center left uh, with that. You know, I, I, gay marriage is not really an issue anymore. I, I've been pretty liberal on that since uh, that became. Uh, kind of an issue maybe about 15 years ago. And I think that's a generational thing. Mm. Um, but other than that, I'm pretty concerned. You know, I like lower taxes. I don't like communism. You know, I've been a very traditional conservative uh, Republican. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about the sort of the links between, um, you mentioned the comparisons between sort of the British Conservative Party and, and the Republican Party. Um, I mean, in, in your experience, has there been a divergence since we all think of the sort of Thatcher-Reagan partnership? Um, has there been a divergence since then, do you think? I think a little, and I think that has that is due to what I call the southernification of the Republican Party, uh, where the, where the um, ideological center base of the party has shifted from uh, the Midwest uh, or even California. If you, if you look at the Republican Party, um, you know, the leadership was sort of sunbelt, but it wasn't an evangelical sunbelt, right? It was more your Arizona's, your California, Florida, places like that. Um, and George Bush Sr., we all must remember he came, you know, he was elected from Texas, but he grew up in New England and his father was a very traditional, he was a, a Republican U.S. Senator from Connecticut, which is not exactly the Bible Belt. And, you know, as you know very well, you know, um, coalitions are very diverse and, and, and the, the evangelical right had been a, a strong part of the Democratic Party for a long time. And Ronald Reagan successfully picked those folks uh, off uh, from the Democrats. And they were an important part of our coalition in the 1980s, but they weren't, you know, driving the boat, as they say. Um, in the 1990s, that sort of started. And you started to see social issues really rise to the fore for those folks uh, in the 1980s. And I think that's kind of where a bit of the divergence was, because I, I don't, you know, um, I, I don't really recall social issues being that important in Britain um, in the way they are in America. And I think once that became 
the focus of the Republican Party. And once the Cold War was won, I think that's an also crucial, crucial point of this. We were both victims of our own success in a lot of ways. Once we won the argument about shrinking government and shrinking tax rates and, you know, communism is bad, we won those arguments by the early 90s. And so then it was, okay, well, what are we going to talk about? And so the Republican Party, um, I think, started to change a little bit. Um, I think on the surface, especially when you look at the war in Iraq, which was a, which was a big contentious issue in, in both of our countries, you know, I think that both conservatives and Republicans were somewhat aligned for the most part there. But, but I think really it had to do with the social issues and it had to do with the Republican Party shifting its historic base from, you know, the Midwest, New England, California, down to the Deep South. And looking at that 2000 election, um, you had, uh, it was the end of the Clinton presidency, so you'd had, as you said, your uh, political adolescence, I suppose, was in sort of uh, opposition to Clinton. It was his um, vice president, Al Gore, who was the Democratic candidate. Did you feel that in that campaign that you were essentially running an insurgency against an incumbent, a de facto incumbent. You must have had sort of a very different experience on that to the experience of four years later running um, a campaign for an incumbent president. There, there is a difference there, isn't there, in presidential politics? Absolutely. And when you look at, on the surface, in 2000, what the Republicans were up against, I mean, it's literally classic peace and prosperity, or, or to quote from from a from a saying from a previous uh, British campaign, you've never had it so good, you know, and that was you know 2000. I mean, we all remember those days, right? I mean, unemployment in the United States was three uh, percent. Nobody had ever heard of Osama bin Laden. Um, you know, peace had broken out. Ever. I mean, now again, I'm you know a little bit sarcastic and speaking in generalities. Of course, a lot of us knew that Osama bin Laden was behind those attacks in 1998 in Kenya and Tanzania and there was a bit of a, a internet bubble that was approaching some people were talking about. So there were issues, but for the most part, it was, you know, one, it was a very tough campaign because how do you run against peace and prosperity? And the answer is <clears throat> Bill Clinton, because Bill Clinton, even though he was uh, kept in office because of peace and prosperity, there was a thing that we in those days called Clinton fatigue. And people seem to forget this, but you know, he was in the news just every time he opened his mouth about something. There were all, all different scandals, not just the Monica Lewinsky scandal, but there were a lot of other things that were going on. And even by his supporters' uh, estimation, you know, he was seen as, a, you know, he was called Slick Willie. And people had very fond memories of, of, of President Bush 41. Um, I think when he lost, there was a, almost immediate buyer's remorse because people felt like he was a really good man. He was a very decent man. They just felt like he wasn't in touch with the, you know, with a lot of economic strife people were going through. But once that was over, people remembered, you know, the good times uh, and the things that he brought to the table as far as character and values and things like that. So it was very hard running against, um, you know, peace and prosperity. But it, had it not been for Clinton's um, dalliances, both financial and uh, personal, I mean, it would have been a 20 point landslide the other way. Uh, as it was, as you know very well, it was, you know, 537 votes in Florida uh, really decided it. And, um, you know, George, George W. Bush was a very popular candidate. He was very personable. Al Gore was very unlikable. He's smart man, you know, 
somewhat decent guy, but just not very um, charismatic. So, so yeah, so we had to rely on Bush's personality and Clinton fatigue, basically, to overcome. And even, even then, it was a very near-run thing. Mm. Um, and then um, you also mentioned your, your time, sort of perhaps more, more recently, um, working for the uh, governor of Pennsylvania. It's, uh, it's a bit of a, a swing state, isn't it? Absolutely. So you were um, working there at a time when um, there was a Republican governor. It's now a, a Democrat, I understand. Um, yes. And so you had a, um, a Democratic president. You had um, Barack Obama as, as president, uh, a Republican governor. I'm just interested at sort of how the dynamic, we're seeing it happen a lot in the UK, as, uh, as you might be aware, where we're seeing a lot of tension between local government and central government over funding for COVID and um, you've got the mayor of, of uh, Greater Manchester um, sort of setting himself out very strongly in opposition to the government uh, and a very public fight going on there at the moment. In terms of how this, the states relate to, to the federal government, that is an institutionalised sort of opposition uh, position. How does that work? I mean, do you have a, a situation where a Republican governor is always going to be railing against the uh, the iniquities of, uh, of what's going on in Washington um, and does that help them in, in, in their political fight if you've got uh, someone from the opposing party in the White House is that a, a bonus for for a, a governor? I think that's a great question I think it depends on the popularity of the incumbent um, the, the incumbent president in, in, in Washington you know in, in 2010 um, we had a very interesting uh, situation because Barack Obama had won on hope and change in 2008 and the economy had not picked up as quickly as folks would have liked. There was also the imposition of Obamacare, um, the Affordable Care Act, which people at the time um, felt that he sort of rammed through without any bipartisan support. The, the, my friends on the other side, on the Democratic side, would, would, would say that, you know, the Republicans did them no favors, but but it still was seen as, you know, this was the biggest piece of social legislation in the United States since the 1960s. And that had been done with a lot of bipartisan uh, support on both sides. So it was sort of seen that um, 2010 was going to be a good Republican year. So as you know, there was a big difference between, in the United States, between, you know, the state issues and state uh, state campaigns and federal campaigns. But when it behooves you, you sort of tie your opponents to the other side and uh, tie your opponents to, to Washington if Washington's unpopular. If Washington's popular, uh, you sort of ignore that. You say, oh, no, all politics is local and let's talk about, you know, what matters here and, you know, how we could save a nickel on the length of pipe or something like that. But, but yeah, Barack Obama was very unpopular in 2010 in Pennsylvania. Uh, he had carried the state by 10 points in 2008. But um, in Pennsylvania in 2010, the Republicans picked up the governor's mansion by 10 points. Um, so it was an almost exact flip. And uh, there was a US Senate seat that, that flipped back to the Republicans. Um, and there were also some congressional races in PA that, that uh, had been Democratic seats that had gone. Um, so yeah, that is something that, that when the, the opposition party in Washington is unpopular, you run against them as much as you run against what's going on in Harrisburg. And then when they're popular, I, I've seen these same folks, you know, line up at the airport greeting line and, you know, want to shake the president's hand in front of all the cameras. 
Chris Christie famously did that in 2012 when there was a hurricane in, in New Jersey. And uh, he, three days before a national election, you know, hugged Barack Obama. It probably cost him the Republican nomination in 2016, as crazy as that sounds, but um, because it hurt him in the Republican primary. But anyway, that's a that's a that's another tale I could tell. But yeah. um, and in 2010, you weren't as long as I'm running against um, an incumbent governor either. Is that helpful? Um, again, I I think uh, well, look, there's a school of thought that that says when you when you're running, um, any incumbent is hard to beat. Uh, because of what Theodore Roosevelt called the bully pulpit. You know, they can command uh, media attention just at the drop of a hat. Um, so sometimes it can be tough, but sometimes like this year, it, it helps to have a kind of a bumbling incumbent to run against. Um, and in 2010, the outgoing governor was not hugely popular, but he also wasn't hugely unpopular. You know, his numbers in the States, as you know, the magic number is 50%. He was like maybe 45, 46, 47. So it wasn't you know, in the low 30s or mid 30s, it was, you know, right where, um, you know, it was kind of right in the middle. So he, he, we didn't really run so much against Rendell as we did against, um, as, against Washington and, and, and Obama and the, the National Democrats. Um, and you then worked as um, Director of Communications, so you were heavily involved in the sort of media presentation. Um, I think from a British perspective, we always sort of look at American politics as being perhaps a bit more um, brutal, certainly in terms of um, communications, quite a lot more sophisticated historically. Uh, a lot of the things that have been imported into British politics have, have tended to come from American politics. Um, do you think that um, the sort of reputation that perhaps um, campaigning in the US has for sort of excessive negative campaigning and sort of brutality in, uh, in political campaigning is justified? Or is that just something which is a um, a feature of all campaigns, but perhaps is more is more um, noticed in America. That's a really good, another good question. I, you know, I think also what that has to do with it tends that our cycles never seem to end. You know, and 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 the people that try to attempt to reform that always point to you all across the pond and say, well, in in Britain the campaigns are only six weeks, and as if to say, you know, everybody, you know, for the for the other, you know, forty six weeks of the year. Uh, just sit back and, you know, I'll get along perfectly. I mean, you know, I, I was lucky enough to spend some time with you uh, in 2010. And, you know, I got to, from just chatting with folks, um, you know, it seemed to be campaigns tend to go a little bit longer than six weeks. But, but in, in the States, uh, you know, it, it used to be seen that you would have a, a very tough general election campaign. And once you got inaugurated, you tended to, they called it, you put your, you know, governance hat on and, and politics kind of went aside. I mean, politics always plays a part as, as we both know in, in decision-making and things, but, but active campaigning, active fundraising, things like that, you used to, you know, wait for the election year. And that all kind of changed in the 1990s. I think it changed a lot with the way the world was changing with the 24 hour news cycle, with the rise of cable television, talk radio, the internet, um, there was a need for all of that. So, so the, the campaign cycle just started to get longer and longer and longer to where now, you know, on, on November 4th, the morning after the election, regardless of who wins, who wins, right? There'll be a few big stories of how they won and what they won and what the margins were. And, 
And inevitably on page three or four of the paper, we'll say, oh, 2024, who's next? Who's running and what's going on? Who's jockeying for power? So it's, you know, it just, it never seems to end. Um, as far as the negative campaigning, I mean, gosh, we go back, you know, 200 some odd years of this where, you know, I remember hearing stories of people claiming, you know, John Adams was a hermaphrodite. I mean, crazy, you know, things that, that you know, you could actually look back, Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, they called him the original gorilla. Um, you know, Andrew Jackson was, you know, a bigamist. I mean, these crazy things that we only thought people like Donald Trump were capable of saying have been kind of spouted about, about American politics as long as, uh, you know, we've been a republic, so. And I think as well, people, I think, have a rose-tinted um, view of, um, of the past. They think that somehow the, the, the politicians of the past were all these great and noble statesmen. And, yes. um, and actually, if you look back, particularly, I was thinking British politics, you look back at um, the satirical cartoons of the, of the 18th century, yeah. Um, and they, they far exceed the brutality of the sort of tabloids of, of, of today and the campaign ads um, in, as you say, in sort of portraying people in, in, a, in a really negative light um, and some quite sort of crude and offensive um, things on those. Um, you, you mentioned the T word, you mentioned Donald Trump for the first time in our discussion. Um, and I think it's probably an apt time to, to move on to, to talking about him as we're just sort of just ahead of the um, of the election, as a sort of lifelong Republican, um, you're now doing something rather interesting. Um, you're you're campaigning um, against uh, a Republican president. So the organisation you're working for is, um, I think, I'm right in saying, defending democracy together. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, defending democracy together. And and tell us a bit about that. What what is it, and what is it trying to do? So Defending Democracy Together started off, um, well, I should probably talk a little bit about the, the opposition to Donald Trump within the Republican Party uh, before I talk specifically about um, Defending Democracy Together. And, and you know, uh, I, I don't want to, I mean, gosh, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about, you know, the, the opposition to Donald Trump. Um, how it started really just in a nutshell was, once it looked like, I mean, the organized opposition, and that's actually a really interesting point, because if you remember, it seems like it was 50 years ago now, but four and a half, five years ago, there were something like 17 Republicans running for president. And most of them, 15, 14 or 15 of them were pretty strong candidates. I think most of us would agree they were, most of them were governors, former governors, senators. They had really um, strong records in, in foreign policy and defense and, and economics and, and all things like that. And they represented a broad, I mean, there were men, there were women, there were people of color. They, uh, geographically, they were spread out. You had, you know, Jeb Bush in Florida, Ted Cruz in Texas, um, all over the place. And, but you had this, literally 400 pound gorilla in the race and Donald Trump who had 100% name identification so he could command anything. The media would cover his rallies live um, where they wouldn't do that with other candidates. They would um, let him, allow him to call into talk shows that had previously been, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Meet the Press in the United States, which was always kind of the, uh, or Face the Nation, you know, you would go on literally face the nation, you know, meet the press. You would go on head to head with folks and answer questions. Donald Trump for the first time ever was allowed to call into these shows. That's how big of a name he was. I think that sort of helped him a lot because he's not known as the sharpest knife in the drawer. And uh, it's, you know, been, been revealed later that he was being fed answers to things 
Um, you didn't, didn't see that with other candidates. So the opposition to Donald Trump was very fractured because obviously you had 16 other people fighting amongst themselves because nobody took Trump seriously. So the opposition really started when Donald Trump kind of emerged as the quasi nominee. And then as the actual nominee, there were a lot of people like myself who just felt that we cannot support this man um, for a host of reasons. Um, besides the fact that, you know, we thought he was extremely unqualified to be um, leader of the free world. Um, simple things, I mean, for instance, maybe uh, accusing your opponent's uh, father of being complicit in the Kennedy assassination was, <laughs> some of us thought was a little bit of a stretch. Um, <clears throat> a lot of his behavior we felt was, was, was unpresidential. A lot of his, um, you know, his actions, things like that. So anyway, so there were a lot of us that started out in opposition to Trump. The difference between then and now is that in 2016, we were all sort of fractured. You had some people that went the full Hillary and endorsed Hillary Clinton and voted for Hillary Clinton. You had some folks that, um, now we must remember there was a, a, a third and a fourth party candidate, uh, which I know for you is just, that's just, you know, par for the course. But for us, that was a big deal. Even if someone got th th 3%, like Gary Johnson, um, that was a, you know, significant amount of the vote. And then you had Jill Stein, who was the Green Party candidate, getting about 1%. So there was a lot of other places that people could go. There was also a fellow named Evan McMullen, who ran not nationally, but in certain states. Um, he was a, a prominent never Trumper. So we were all sort of fractured. When Trump won, uh, it was a lot easier because we could say, okay, well, we could be in opposition to him. We can hope that the Republican Party in Washington and in the states will serve as a bulwark against him. And that actually was the name of, an, a current name of a, a podcast and a website and a um, group of folks that um, are in opposition, that who I work with. So, so the, the email arm, the um, podcast arm of Defending Democracy Together is known as the Bulwark. And we all assumed and thought wrongly that the Republicans in Washington were gonna stand up to Trump um, and it was clear very, very early that they were not going to do that. And Trump just kept getting away with one thing after another, whether it was the firing of the FBI director, um, you know, standing with Putin against his own, um, you know, intelligence services, and then now with COVID. And then let's not forget, this man was impeached uh, nearly a year ago uh, for, you know, trying to shake down the, the, the government of Ukraine in order to get dirt on a political opponent. So um, we all thought the Republican Party at all those different points was going like, to stand up as one and say, nope, enough is enough and you have to go. And it just never happened. And so now we, we went from trying to reform the party from within and, you know, stirring up opposition to him in, in the form of whether someone would primary him or whether Washington Republicans would officially break with him to now most of us, if not all, are actively endorsing and trying to get Joe Biden elected. So that's sort of the long way around, but, but, but now we are, you know, we all, we're all still conservatives. I mean, no, none of us, we've discussed this before. I mean, there might be a couple of things where here or there, uh, some of us might be a little left of center on personally, but for the most part, we are all still dyed in the wool, you know, Reagan, Thatcher, Bush conservatives.
And what do you think is the explanation for why the sort of checks and balances within the political process just haven't worked with Trump? You've had um, a series of moments, as you say, the kind of bulwark um, kind of theory that, well, they won't let him get away with half of these things. You know, he'll be kept in check. Um, at every point down the line, you've had the primary process, which is supposed to ensure that you get a candidate who is credible to be put mm -hmm. forward to the electorate. Um, you then, I suppose, have the general election itself, where you would hope the electors would would vote for someone who's qualified to be yeah. uh, to be present. And it's a mixture, isn't it, of, of political checks. So the sort of the opposition to him from within the Republican Party. And there's also constitutional checks as well. So um, I remember there was some discussion about once he had um, been elected about whether members of the Electoral College would be um, able to to reject that, to say that he's not qualified to be president. Yeah. Um, and and then, as you say, once he's he's then in office, you have intrinsically within the American system, the checks and balances of of the uh, the, the branches of of government and you would expect and hope that uh, the Congress would hold the president in check. And as you said, something's happened that, that has just left the, um, the Republicans in, in Washington uh, unwilling or unable to break with him. And is that, uh, is that a failure of, of sort of moral courage on their part? Uh, is it self-interest in some, some degree that they, they believe their, their interests are best served by um, standing behind him? In previous eras, the sort of the death knell for a president has 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 come in in the shape of uh, of Nixon when his party decided that they couldn't put up with this any longer. You know, when it got to the point that it was clear he would be impeached and ejected from office, he resigned. With with Trump, you would kind of ex have expected that he might have have been at risk of of being removed from office. There was never any danger of that because everyone knew the Republicans would stand behind him. What what's happened to sort of to to erode those checks and balances? I think extreme partisanship, where extreme partisanship and extreme tribalism. You know, the Republican Party, the the Nixon um, the Nixon situation was a little bit different because in those days the Republican Party had a very strong liberal and a conservative wing, as the Democratic Party did, and and the parties were also. You know, you had Southern conservatives, you know, voting with Northern conservatives that were Republican. So Southern conservative Democrats voting with Northern conservative Republicans. And then you had, you know, some Northern liberals voting with, uh, you know, Southern liberals. So the, the parties were very fractured in those days. Now, the Republican Party is essentially, uh, for the most part in Washington, a Southern based conservative party. And the, the, the problem is, is that I can't tell you how many times I would have arguments with folks, with friends of mine, and I would say, you know, but Comey and but this and but that. And they would just say, oh, but the Democrats are worse. The Democrats are far worse. And we do not want socialism. And if, you know, if, the, if, the, if you give Trump, you know, if, if you give Trump the heave ho, we're going to have socialism in America and it's going to be Barack Obama 2.0. And I would well first say, well, you know how the Constitution works. The vice president would become president and that vice president is a Republican. So there is a way uh, to do that. I think the short answer is just fear. Um, there were a lot of times people stood up to Trump. Everybody kind of forgets this. But in 2016, he's nothing if not consistent in his offenses. And in 2016, there were all these times he had done things that people thought, ah, that's it. 
that's it. He's, it's going to be the end. And somebody would do a poll the next day and the Republican base, the voters just didn't care. And they, they, did, they hated Hillary Clinton that much. He was the nominee and they thought they're just going to ride this out. And, and the most potential damaging in, during the campaign uh, was the, the Access Hollywood uh, story, which I will not repeat because I'm sure this is a family podcast. <laughs> Um, but Donald Trump said some very ob obnoxious, obscene, disgusting, misogynistic things. And it looked at that point, it was over. A lot of uh, elected Republicans officially came out, Lindsey Graham, one of them, saying they cannot support him, they can't vote for him, they're going to write in, you know, John McCain or George Bush or whoever. And it didn't matter. The Republican base just kind of kept rallying to him. So it was a situation where the tail's wagging the dog, the politicians were following the voters instead of the other way around, instead of being leaders and standing up, they were followers. And, and I think if a lot of them had stood up en masse and said, enough is enough, I think the base would have, you know, people respond to leadership. And unfortunately, a lot of these Republicans were sheep. And so by the time you get to, gosh, the Ukraine scandal last year, they were just, you know, at that point, you had three years of Donald Trump calling the media the enemy of the people. Uh, he can, you know, gaslit folks on a, on a, on a bunch, of, bunch of different issues. So folks in America don't know what side's up, one side's down. Um, social media has had a lot to do with that. So it's, it's a different time than, you know, than the Nixon days where you only had in America three, three news channels and two major national newspapers. Now it's folks don't listen to the same, you know, radio shows. They don't, they don't, they don't watch the same television anymore. They don't read the same newspapers. They don't read the same internet blogs. So Trump sort of has all of his supporters in this cocoon of, of talk radio and Fox News. And that's all they get. It's sort of, it's, it's, it's very eerily reminiscent of Goebbels in Germany in the 1930s, where it's just, you know, you tell the lie loud enough and big enough and your people believe it. So, so these Republican elected uh, officials have decided that it's just easier to ride this out with him and then maybe start to turn on him when he loses than to stand up and do the right thing. And let's also remember his Twitter account. I mean, we did have a few people that did stand up to him in the first few years of his presidency. There was a, a guy called uh, Mark Sanford, who was a congressman from South Carolina, very conservative, very, very conservative. Uh, another one named Jeff Flake, who was a US Senator in uh, Arizona. And they stood up very forcibly and denounced him and denounced what he was doing. And Donald Trump put a couple of tweets out and their numbers just, plummeted in their home states with the with the, re the republican voters there so it is just fear and cowardice is really uh, is really the, the the i think the prime mover there so you've now um created this organization defending democracy together uh, who, who actually established it um and, and when did you get involved so it was established by Sarah Longwell and, uh, and Bill Crystal was also one of the founders. Bill Crystal, who was known in the United States for uh, founding a magazine called The Weekly Standard in the 1990s. He had been, uh, you know, like all of us, he had been a light, lifelong conservative. He had worked in the Bush 41 administration as uh, Vice President Dan Quayle's chief of staff. But the thing also about Bill is he'd worked in the business, so he understood how government worked. He understood how campaigns worked. And Bill, like a lot of us, just had enough and stood up from, you know, the very beginning and just said enough is enough. And so Sarah also has a, a similar background where she had been, uh, you know, worked in advocacy in, in, in Washington for a number of years and it, it had been involved in Republican and conservative causes. And um, it was just this kind of um, 
you know, merry band of brothers and sisters that got together and just, you know, uh, decided to, to just go down fighting. And, you know, we were mocked by the Trump folks. We were mocked by his sycophants. And, and now, um, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of stories have come out that, you know, they've, a lot of folks have changed their tune. They, they may not agree with us, but they, I think they respect a little more what, what, what we've stood for. This has cost, I mean, honestly, a lot of people jobs, a lot of people friends, a lot of people, you know, fortunes, small fortunes by doing this. And I'm sure as, you know, you may have this um, in your neck of the woods, but, you know, there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, shockingly make money at this business, you know, in, uh, of politics and uh, consulting and, and all that. And, and they kind of saw very quickly that the path forward was to just get along with the Trump people because you would lose contracts, you would lose a lot of that sort of stuff. A lot of us just kind of said, damn the torpedoes and, you know, we're paying for it, but, um, you know, we could all sleep at night. So that's yeah. what And do, do you see it as being um, predominantly a, a sort of patriotic uh, campaign to, to sort of uh, go beyond politics and say, this is, this is a president, this is a, a candidate we can't possibly support regardless of of being lifelong Republicans, or is it more to do with the fact that you're saying this guy is clearly not the Republican Party uh, that that we joined? That this is not mm. he is he, he is not serving the interests of the party. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's a bit of both, but 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 is it is it predominantly a a patriotic uh, a campaign to to try and rise above politics, or or is it an attempt to to try and save the Republican Party from itself? Well, it's both. I think the first thing we, we are trying to do is, and I'm not trying to, you know, be overdramatic here, but I'm going to be overdramatic. Um, you know, we, we call it country over party for a reason, because it's sort of like, look, we'll, we'll sort the Republican mess out once we get this person out of office, because the things that he is espousing you know, I hate to use terms like this has never happened in American history, but it literally has never happened in American history where someone sitting in the Oval Office is attacking the very democracy that put him in there, right? Someone who is demeaning the electoral integrity that has elected presidents, congresspeople, senators, everyone down to dog catcher in the United States for 244 years. We've never had someone attack democracy before who make jokes like I'm going to serve, you know, I'll serve another 12 years. I mean, it's very Vita sort of stuff, right? It's very Juan Perón. It's very uh, tin, tin horn dictator sort of things. And what's frightening to me is that 40 some odd percent of the country is completely fine with this. And they will say, oh, but socialism, but Hillary, who, by the way, is not running this year. I don't know how, how closely you follow, but she's not one of the candidates. And um, but, you know, they, they run up, they, they just kind of trot out these really sad sort of excuses of why they're for this. And, it, and again, you know, you and I are history buffs. It's very scary um, parallels to 1930s Germany. And that's what we're seeing now in America. I, I don't use that Hitler analogy loosely. I've never used it before. I hated when people would refer to George W. Bush as Hitler or Barack Obama as Hitler. I just thought that was very unbecoming because I thought neither of them deserve, you know, neither of them were one-tenth of as bad as Donald Trump has been in office. And he says these things from, from, from the Oval Office. I mean, you saw when he got out of the hospital at COVID, that strange procession he made up, up, up to the balcony and, 
you know, ripped his mask off and saluted. I mean, it was something right out of Evita. It was really frightening. So we feel that we are literally defending democracy and that we, people like me have not supported Joe Biden in the past. Um, I always thought for the record, he was actually a really decent guy. And you, you know, Nigel, you know, you've worked in this business. There are people that you can fight with 12, 15 hours a day, but then go have a pint with after, you know, they're good, they're good people. And we're all trying to get to the same place. You know, we've had these discussions before you and I, and, and Joe Biden is the epitome of that. He was just a good, decent, honest, hardworking guy. Uh, I know I've never met him personally. I know a lot of people who have, I've never once heard a bad negative thing about the man. Um, he's just a decent person. And now that's what we're down to. We're down to decency versus deviancy. And that's what Donald Trump is. So, um, you know, I, I, I am done. I, I know my taxes are going to go up. I'm not happy about it, but I'd rather have a country uh, in four years that we could then argue in 2024 and 2028 about lowering taxes at that point. I, I'd rather just win with a decent person who understands government, who understands the role of uh, America in the world, which we haven't even gotten to that stuff yet. But 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 yeah, so I'm willing to put all these sorts of ideological things aside, whether it's, you know, regulations and taxes and all that uh, for the good of American democracy. Finally, um, to set out two scenarios for you, the polls are pointing towards a, a Biden victory and that Trump will be out of office. Firstly, assuming that he loses the election from everything we've heard him say, there can be no real certainty that he's going to adopt democratic norms in terms of uh, the transition and uh, and leaving office. I wonder if you had any thoughts on, on that and the, the dangers that might pose to, to, to democracy. And secondly, the other possibility, um, we've, we've been here before, four years ago, where the, the idea of President Trump winning an election seemed absurd, that if he were to win. So firstly, some thoughts on the transition and the, the implications of him losing. Um, for the next few months. And secondly, if he were to win, what are the implications of that for, for, for the next four years? Oh, boy. Um, well, to answer that, uh, with the transition, we, again, have never had somebody who has threatened that they may not leave office. Again, I am completely dumbstruck at that. Uh, nobody has ever even remotely hinted of that in the past 200 and 244 years. And I, I do think if, you know, one of the things about a, a lot of us, not just in defending democracy together, but folks in the Lincoln Project, you know, we do not want this to be a close election. Obviously, a win is a win, as you and I both know from being on winning and losing sides of many a campaign, a win is a win. But it's really, really important that it is a big win for Joe Biden, because that makes it all the much harder for Donald Trump to try any shenanigans, to try to claim it was stolen, to try to claim that, you know, the deep state is out to get him. I mean, if this, if this character loses by 10 percentage points, I mean, that would be the biggest, uh, which by the way, is where the average of polls are right about now. That would be the biggest race in, in, in American history since 1984. Um, so it'd be a pretty big, uh, pretty big uh, landslide against him. And, and, and as an incumbent president, as you know, you know, incumbents tend to lose in closer elections. You know, you'd have to go back to Jimmy Carter in 1980 to see an incumbent lose that badly. So I, I do think, again, it's frightening, it's scary that somebody would even say those sorts of things. But I do believe, and this sort of gets to 
when the Republican Party would find its collective backbone. I think if they lost by 10 points, if you know they lost the Senate, if they lost 20 or 30 more seats in the House, um, if Republicans just got butchered all over the country, I think then you will see a lot of people, including former President George W. Bush, who's been very, very quiet. I think all it would take would be for him to stand up and say, all right, Donald, it's been fun, but your show just got canceled. See ya. And I think that would that would go a long way. And I think, you know, again, the, the one thing that has worked, I mean, we've talked about the the other branch of government, the legislative branch hasn't been working as well as it should have, at least in the Republican side. The the judiciary has been working pretty strongly. And I think that I think the Supreme Court has a history of doing the right thing. You know, in United States versus Nixon. Uh, the Supreme Court voted eight to nothing against President Nixon, and he had appointed two of those justices. So courts do, you know, as we used to say in the 1930s against the New Deal, you know, thank God for the Supreme Court. I think we might be saying that again um, over the next few weeks if there's any sort of issues. And then to your second point about, I guess, were you kind of asking more do I think he could win or do I think, you know? Um... Well, I mean, I think just what, what would the implications of that be? Um, I mean, it's, well, if he did win. Yeah. I mean, well, what, what, you know, what, what would be the, the implications for, for democracy, for the Republican party of, of another four years of Trump? Uh, yeah, it's, it's frightening. It's frightening because, you know, the only thing keeping him going completely off the rails, which is insane as that sounds, because I feel like he's gone off the rails on many times, on many occasions, um, you know, was the fact that he had to run for re-election. So some of the things, you know, that might have, uh, some of his even crazier impulses uh, might have been in check because he knew he had to run for re-election. I think, yeah, it's frightening. It's frightening what he would do, what he would do in foreign policy. I think that's kind of would be a big hallmark of the second term. I think the, 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 the alliance, I think um, the alliance is a big thing. It's, it's something he is, again, no American president has attacked the alliance, which has kept the peace for 70 odd years, um, which has been a strong bulwark for freedom and democracy, not just in Europe, but all over the world, as you know. Um, I think that that's gonna be uh, at risk. I think um, for the Republican party, look, it already is the party of Trump, but I think it can come back if he is repudiated. I think, you know, um, you know, you I'm, can't- I'm and on that point, I, I think sort of looking at the sort of the secondary objective to, to to what you're doing, which is to sort of save the Republican Party from what's happened to it under Trump. How quickly do you think, assuming a, 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 a definitive Trump defeat, how quickly do you think the Republican Party would repudiate uh, those years and, and return to sort of some more more normal uh, sort of degree of politics? Some of us joke around that there's going to need to be, you know, the secret speech that Khrushchev gave, you know, in 1955, I think it was 54, 55 after Stalin had died, um, kind of saying like, hey, you know, it's not us. It was that guy and he's gone now. And, you know, look, we need to we need to stand up against that. I, I mean, I think there's still going to be a strong base of support for Trump and Trumpism in the Republican Party. My hope is, and I'm, at this point, it's just, you know, me speaking, I'm not really speaking for um, defending democracy together, but just how I think it would go is I think, you know, his support would be sort of fractured when the strong man goes down. Uh, it's very hard for people to kind of pick up those marbles and, and, uh, and, and move on. I think that it would be split many ways. I think if, 
you know, what, what I'd like to call traditional conservatives uh, have a path. I think that path would be very similar to what, what got Joe Biden, the Democratic nomination. You know, we must remember if the Republicans had 17 candidates, the Democrats had like 25 candidates this time. So uh, and Joe Biden was just kind of slow and steady, the tortoise and the hare sort of situation. And I think if, um, if, if there is a governor who was not closely who was not closely associated with the mess in Washington, and I don't know who that is. There are a lot of them out there. I think Charlie Baker in Massachusetts is great. I think Phil Scott in um, in Vermont is great. I think these were both governors who done, by the way, great jobs with managing COVID in their particular states. Their leaders, they they've shown uh, they've worked with the opposition. Uh, you know, again, having a Republican governor in Vermont and Massachusetts is you know. It's almost like having, you know, Liverpool be all conservative. Um, it, it's it's sort of uh, it's it's sort of like a unicorn. But they've been very successful and both been reelected by landslides. So I think if people like that take the traditional conservative mantle, while the Trumpers, you know, ten or twelve Trumpers run and kind of split that vote up, I think uh, I think it can happen. I think it's going to be tough. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Trump can still lose by ten points. Can still lose the Senate. And there will be a, believe me, a vast majority of Republicans the day after the election that will say it was because of COVID, he, you know, or he was robbed, or the media, Hillary's emails, yada, yada, yada. That will still go on. Um, but if, if people are tired of losing, and as we both know, you know, politicians like they're in this business to win, and they see that Trumpism was repudiated by, you know, upwards of 60% of the national population. And they do not want the Republican Party to be a, a backwater regional party. Uh, they will kind of do the right thing and start to repudiate at least the extreme, uh, extreme excesses of the Trump years. And then as we go further, you know, I'm sure it'll it'll get go even deeper than that. But I think in the short term, you know, you're gonna we will need to, as never Trumpers will need to coalesce behind one or two maybe candidates, you know, hold our ground and and then hope the opposition sort of uh, splits in a lot of different uh, directions. Great, well, it's gonna be an interesting uh, and perhaps nervous uh, last days of, of the campaign. And then a very interesting period, whatever happens in, in, in the months after that. But I'm sure we'll speak again at some point. Um, yeah. Perhaps we can uh, ar arrange a post-election uh, post catch-up uh, to talk about what it all means. But thanks very much indeed for, for joining us on the podcast. The pleasure has been all mine. Chris Brennan there talking to me from the front line of the US election in Pennsylvania, where he's regional director for Defending Democracy Together. And it was a fascinating discussion, I thought, uh, to get his take on what has happened to the Republican Party in the United States and the way that he and others are fighting back. So to round off this US election special as we head towards polling day in the United States and I'm sure a rather nerve-wracking time not least because there are indications that because of the challenges of uh, absentee ballots the results may not be known on election night itself. I think it's worth returning to some of the women that we heard from in the first part of the podcast. Firstly uh, we heard from uh, Carly Fiorina the former CEO of Hewlett-Packard, who was the only woman in the 2016 Republican primary race. She is somebody who, like Chris Brennan, has decided that she cannot support 
Donald Trump as the Republican nominee. This is what she said about why she's endorsing Joe Biden. As citizens, we do not pledge allegiance to a party. We do not pledge allegiance to a person, even the president. We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and we are faithful to the Constitution. And actually, in our nation, citizens are sovereign. Our founding fathers didn't want political parties. George Washington said in 1789, the trouble with political parties is they will come to care only about winning. And so I do not think our job is to be loyal to a party. And I don't think that we are supposed to pledge loyalty to the leader of any party, either party. So is your Actually, politicians work for us. Parties should work for us. Presidents should work for us. And so while I don't agree with everything Joe Biden believes, uh, I don't agree with all the policies of his party. I have been a Republican for all my life. I think Joe Biden is a stronger leader because he has demonstrated humility, empathy, the willingness to collaborate with others, and the character that I think matters in a leader. Republican Carly Fiorina speaking earlier this month. And finally, let's return to another of the women we heard from at the beginning of the podcast. Somebody who's actually on the ballot this November. Democratic Senator Kamala Harris, who's now the Democratic vice presidential nominee. In the extract that we heard, she was talking about the impact of the Senate voting to acquit the president and allow him, in her words, to get away with it. This is what she said at the end of her speech. So after the Senate votes today, Donald Trump will want the American people to feel cynical. He will want us not to care. He will want us to think that he is all powerful and we have no power. But we're not gonna let him get away with that. We're not gonna give him what he wants because the true power and potential of the United States of America resides not with the president, but with the people. All the people. The words of Senator Kamala Harris there. And it won't be long until we hear what it is that those people say. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Opposition Cast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please make sure you're subscribed on whichever podcast service it is that you use and spread the word. Let other people know who might be interested to hear it. And if you use social media, do follow Opposition UK on Twitter and share the word about the podcast with the hashtag OppositionCast. My thanks again to my guest Chris Brennan for joining us from the front line in Pennsylvania, where I'm sure he and everyone else is going to be in for a very interesting time. We'll be back for another episode of Opposition Cast very soon, in the next few weeks. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Look after yourselves. And I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Well, that's it then. We've saved people the trouble of voting. What's next?